When I was in seminary, I worked a full-time job as an accounting clerk at a cardiology clinic, and the clinic had four separate locations, and at times that made the job difficult because each location liked to do things just a little bit differently. So at times, to get everybody on the same page, we would have to attend these day-long seminars in a central location to get us all back in the same sandbox, playing in the same sandbox, playing on the same team. And uh, these seminars covered a wide variety of topics. Some dealt with our job and how to do things properly and more efficiently and how to work more cohesively together. But at other times, uh, topics dealt with Uh, behavioral issues that needed to be addressed, you know, the proper way to conduct yourself in the workplace and things like that, dealing with with others in the workplace. And that was one of the most uh, memorable of seminars that that I attended was one on how to get along with your co-workers in the workplace. We spent an entire day on that one topic, and believe me when I say that it was needed. It really was. And one of the things that made this seminar so memorable for me was the speaker. The speaker was a guy who was a a, a very dynamic, extremely gifted communicator, and he provided a lot of activities during his talk and object lessons that were were helpful to us uh, that helped us remember some of the points that uh, he was discussing with us. And of all the conferences that I attended, that was the only one I could remember people coming away from and truly being impressed. At the end of the day, the talk around the water cooler was how much everyone enjoyed the the conference and the speaker. And I talked with one lady who said that she was so impressed with the principles presented that she was actually going to go home and try them out in her home and apply them to her home life as well. And, and one principle that people continued to talk about over and over again was when the speaker talked about the importance of being a servant worker. A servant worker. He shared with us that one of the keys to getting along with others in the workplace and, and one of the keys to being successful in your job and more importantly in life is by being a servant. By adopting the I'm second mentality that says the needs of others come before my own needs. He said putting others first is so very important. He says serving others before yourself is the key to having a peaceful work environment and a productive workplace. And I remember some of my coworkers talking about that principle as if they've never heard it before. It was groundbreaking. They were saying things like, man, you know, that just makes sense. That just sounds right. I don't know where I've heard that before, or if I have, but it just sounds right. But folks, we know this principle is nothing new, don't we? You, many of you have probably been to conferences where you've heard the exact same principle presented. So though it's an important principle to adopt, it's nothing new, is it? Remember I told you a while back in one of my sermons, this this is one of our principles that we have adopted in Rotary. I'm a Rotarian here in Jacksonville, 
And every now and again, our, our former president will get up and say, I'm excited, and we'll respond by saying, service above self. Because that's what we're to be all about as Rotarians, about serving others in the community and serving people in and around the world. There's a great book out right now on leadership. It came out several years ago entitled Good to Great. Have any of y'all read this book, Good to Great? Yeah, a few of you are nodding your heads, okay. Uh, it's a secular book. It's not a Christian book, but it's a great book on leadership with some great principles. And what the author does is he reports his findings from his research team of common shared characteristics of companies that went from being decent to being highly successful. And he, he compares these with companies that went in the opposite direction from good to bad to terrible, and he finds and shares the common characteristics among these failing businesses as well. And he just, in the book, he reports his findings. And one of the discoveries that the author, Jim Collins, has, which actually surprises him, is when it comes to the leadership of these successful companies. He says, you know, we expected that the leaders, the CEOs of these highly successful companies, we expected them to be these larger-than-life characters. He says, we're expecting these CEOs to be very vocal, invisible, over-the-top, charismatic types of people. But what he says is, surprisingly, we found the opposite to be true. He said the leaders and the CEOs of these good-to-great companies were, in fact, servant leaders. They were ambitious, but not for personal gain. Listen to what he says about them. Listen to what he writes about them. He says, in contrast to the very eye-centric style of the comparison leaders, we were struck by how the good to great leaders did not talk about themselves all that much. During interviews with the good to great leaders, they talked about the company and the contributions of other executives as long as we like, but would deflect discussion about their own contributions. And, of course, he, he, he shares this with his readers to make the point that good to great leaders, great leaders of good to great companies, they tend to have these humble and selfless characteristics. They, they tend to be servant leaders who are more focused upon others than they are themselves. So, again, you see this principle, once again, is nothing new, right? It did not originate with the guy who spoke to me and my employees when I worked in, in Memphis or, or with the CEOs of these successful companies, nor did it begin with Rotary or any other civic organization. Now, in fact, what we're going to find this morning is that this principle goes back much, much further than that. We're going to find in the text that we're going to look at this morning, as well as all throughout the Scripture when you look through it, you find that this principle is biblical. Putting others first originated with God and is what he calls for, for all of us as people to be doing in his word as well. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he told his followers more than a few times that the greatest among them would be the last. 
He says in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And Jesus not only taught this, he not only spelled this out for us, but he exampled this for us, didn't he? If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13. John 13, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of John this morning entitled, Knowing Jesus from John, and we're taking a chapter a week out of this great book, and what we've been doing is, each and every week, we've taken a chapter out of the book, and we ask, what does this chapter teach me about Jesus? And we've talked about all sorts of things so far, haven't we? We've learned that he is Redeemer, Savior, the living water, the Son of God, the bread of life, the great teacher, he is the truth, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. And last week we talked about the fact that he is the king. Well, this week we're going to talk about knowing Jesus as the true servant. So turn in your Bibles to John 13. And before we get into the main points of the sermon here, let me take a moment just to explain to you about where we are in the book. This morning, we're entering into a very important section in this book known as the Upper Room Discourse. And this section lasts for five chapters. The events that take place in this chapter and in the chapters to follow are believed to have taken place just hours before Jesus' arrest and a day before his crucifixion. And during this section, Jesus is with his disciples and he is preparing them and he is equipping them for what is to come. He's getting ready to leave them. He knows it's coming. He knows it's time to go to the cross and lay his life down. But before he does, he spends this last night with his disciples, teaching them and showing them and exampling for them how they are to live as God's people. And I want you to notice something very, very interesting about this section. John's book of 21 chapters covers three years of Jesus' life. Yet this one section of five chapters took place in one night. In a matter of hours. John spends close to one-fourth of this book in and around the events of the upper room. Isn't that interesting? Now that should tell us something, shouldn't it? John is showing us that the events that transpire on this night in and around this room are very, very important. And John begins this section by telling his readers of a significant event that happens early on in the night, shortly after the disciples enter the room and sit down to eat with Jesus. Let's read what happens, John 13, beginning in verse 1. It says this, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's stop there for a minute. 
Let's think about what we have here. We have the disciples in the upper room during this Passover meal. And they're eating this meal together. And during this meal, Jesus gets up and he removes his outer garments. And he wraps a towel around his waist. And he pours water into a basin. And he gets on all fours on his hands and his knees. And he begins to wash his disciples' feet. He washes them. He cleans them and he dries them off. Now, I know most of you in here, you're familiar with that story, right? You've heard that story so many times, but you know what? Because we're just, we, we've heard it so much, we often just gloss over it, and we fail to realize the significance of what Christ does here. Because one reason why is because we've heard it so much, but another reason why is because we really don't have anything to compare it to, this experience. You know, when we go somewhere to eat, or we go visit a friend's house, we don't normally have water basins near the door and a designated person sitting in the corner ready to wash our feet when we walk in. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, this is an activity that is foreign to us because we don't have foot washers in our society today. And one of the reasons why is because we don't really need it. Now, some of us might. There are always exceptions, right, in those cases. Some of us might, but but but... Most of us don't. And one of the reasons is because our, our feet are completely covered with socks and shoes. Another reason why is because we don't do a whole lot of traveling on foot. We drive to where we want to go, and a lot of times we try to get right up to the front of the door, right? So we don't have to walk all that far. But at most, we have to, you know, walk across a parking lot. In most places we walk, there are covered and paved roads. But in this culture, in the first century times, we're different. People wore sandals, they traveled by foot, and walked alongside animals that roamed the streets. And I don't think I have to go into too much detail of why that would dirty up your feet. Am I right? So in that day, it was nearly impossible to keep your feet clean. So when people would walk into someone's house, there was a need to have your feet washed before going in. And I'm sure if you were a homeowner in those days, you would appreciate that, right? That'd be something you would budget for is a feet washing guy. So foot washing was, was much more common in, in that day because it was needed. So there was a, a need for a foot washer, and this was not a popular job to have, as you can imagine. This was a very lowly job. Look at a quote here by, by Bible scholar A.J. Kostenberger. He said this, The washing of feet was considered too demeaning for disciples or even a Jewish slave and thus was assigned to non-Jewish slaves. Thus, Jesus' stance as a non-Jewish slave would have been shocking to his disciples and would have called for an explanation. You see, this role of foot washing was so low that it's not even something a Jewish slave would do. By doing this task, Jesus was essentially taking on one of the lowest roles imaginable. This would have been shocking to his disciples. And this would have required an explanation from Jesus, which is what they call for here. This is why Peter responds the way that he does when Jesus gets to him and wants to wash his feet. Notice what he, what he says. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do, not, do, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. 
Never. Now, my guess is everyone in the room was sort of thinking what Peter voices here in verse 8, which is not all that surprising, right? This is the norm for Peter. He often took it upon himself to be the spokesperson for the group and often said what others were thinking but may have been too timid or too afraid to say. And so the the entire group is probably shocked by Jesus' actions here. But Jesus is the one who, I mean, Peter is the one who, who speaks up and he rebukes Jesus by saying, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. I will not allow you to do it. And to Peter's defense, you know, we're often real quick to jump all over Peter. But I think many of us in that situation would have been like, yeah, you're right, Peter. If we were in his shoes, we could probably relate because think about what just happened in the previous chapter. Talked about this last week. Jesus has just come into Jerusalem as the king. He is the king. Peter probably has in his mind, Jesus is Lord of all creation. He is the king of all kings. I can't allow my Lord and my king to serve me in this way. Also notice that though Peter spoke his mind quite a bit, there were only just a few times when Peter stands in the way of the plan of Jesus. Jesus has a plan. He's headed to the cross. Peter steps in his way a few times, but not very often. But one, one time was when he, 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 Jesus was talking about his coming death, and, and Peter says, don't even talk about it. That's not going to happen, you know, and he gets rebuked by Jesus. Then another time comes a little later on in the night when they come to arrest Jesus. And we know what Peter does there. He goes all ninja on the guy and takes his ear off. So those were a few times when, when, when Peter resisted because of the fact that he was opposed to Jesus dying. Peter couldn't wrap his mind around what would be significant about a dead Messiah. And many of them were in that same boat. So he resists there. But this act right here is also difficult for him to wrap his mind around. It was as inconceivable for him that Jesus died. It was, it was equally inconceivable that Jesus would take on a role of a non-Jewish slave and wash his feet. It was just, he, he couldn't wrap his mind around it. It was unheard of. This is how lowly of a task this was. And this should really cause us to pause and think as well, believers, it should. Now, we don't often, like I said earlier, we don't often pause in this story at all because we've heard it so many times, we just gloss over it and accept it without really thinking about what went down, which is why the context is key here. I mean, think about it. This is considered one of the lowliest jobs one could have, a job that was too disgraceful for a Jewish slave, and that's the very role that Jesus took on. That's the very job that Jesus performed. Why? Why did he take on this role? Why did he perform this task? Why did Jesus serve in this way? Two reasons. One, he did it to be our example. verse 12 when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place he said to them do you understand what I have done to you you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus clearly states here that he has washed their feet to be an example for them. He is giving them an example here that he wants them to follow. Look at verse 15. He says it as clear as day here. He says, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. We learn at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus knew his time was up, right? He knew his time was coming to an end. He knew it was time for him to leave them and, and go to the cross. He knew he wasn't going to be with them much longer. So what he's doing here in these last few hours with them is he's setting an example for them so that when he goes, they'll know how they are to live and, and, and how they are to serve one another. They're to serve God by serving one another. He's leaving them an example. Jesus is telling them here, like I have served you, I want you to serve others in this way. And let me tell you, this is a tough example that Christ leaves. It is. Remember, he's the Lord of all. He's the king of all kings. He's God. And he has just taken on a role that is detestable to a Jewish slave. And he tells his disciples, you also should do as I have done to you. It says in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The point Jesus is making here is simple. He's basically saying this. He's saying, if I'm not above cleaning the filth between your toes... How much more so should you be willing to humble yourself and serve one another? Well, that's hard to argue with, isn't it? Believe me when I say the disciples needed to hear this message. In Luke's account of the upper room, in Luke 22, you can turn over there. Luke 22, look at verse 24. Luke explains that during this meal... The disciples are having a conversation about who is going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. Look at, look at verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Wow. So they're in the upper room eating this meal together and the disciples start having this conversation about which of them is going to be the greatest. They're wondering who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. They wanted to know who's going to be the main man. Who's going to stand head and shoulders above the rest. This is the kind of conversation they're having hours before Jesus is going to give his life up. Wow. How ironic is it? That on the same night this conversation takes place, Jesus gets up and he takes off his outer garments and he wraps a towel around his waist and he pours water into a basin and he gets on all fours and he washes their feet. Wow. He's showing them, you guys got it all backwards. 
By this act, Jesus shows his disciples what true greatness is. He shows them that one who is truly great is one who considers himself last and a servant of all. And his disciples needed to hear this message, and we need to hear it as well, right? Not a lot has changed today. We, like the disciples in Jesus' day, are consumed with getting ahead, with being head and shoulders above the rest. That's our natural instinct to get ahead of one another and to be served, but not to serve. And this comes at an early age. How many of you in elementary school love to be in the front of the line? Raise your hand. Just be honest. Ah. And at times, when I was in line, this is an honest confession here, I'd have somebody want to cut in front of me. And so I'd say this, see if you've ever done this. I'd say, you can cut in front of me, but then you have to let me cut back in front of you. You know? Anybody ever do this? It's just me? Man, y'all are, y'all are just super spiritual. But it's a great idea, right, for a kid, because that's the way you can come across looking like a good guy or, or girl and not have to give up your spot in line. That's the way we are. That's the way we think. We want to be first. We don't want to give up our position. And at a young age, we reason in this way. So this is the dilemma, folks, that we are all faced with. Because we are fallen, we naturally want to put ourselves first. That's our natural instinct, to get ahead and to be served. But Christ calls for us to do the exact opposite. He said, if you want to follow me, if you want to be the greatest, you have to follow my example and get behind and serve. That's what he says. And he leads by example, doesn't he? Believers, it's so important for us to remind ourselves of his example. It's so important that we remember how Christ humbled himself for us because let's be honest, like we've been talking about, we need to be knocked down a few pegs, don't we? The disciples needed it and and we need it because we all think too highly of ourselves. At times... Ava and Edie, less than I's girls, older girls, at times they don't like to clean their rooms. I shouldn't even say at times, most of the time. <laughs> that's, that's, that's giving them a lot of credit. Most of the time. Yeah. They somehow think they're above it. And I even had Ava, when she was real little and I was in there, she told me that it was her job to make the mess and daddy's job to clean up. <laughs> Sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and one day I was in there helping them clean, you know, and they're just continuing to play, and I'm thinking to myself, something has gone terribly wrong here, you know? These girls think it's my job to clean their room, and this is not my room. This is not my mess. These aren't my toys. This is not my job. But we often reason in this way. We think we're above certain things that we should, in fact, be doing. Where does that come from? Like I said, it's in our nature. We're fallen. But we also get that message from the world around us, don't we? The world tells us that we're to think of ourselves highly. We're to have a high self-esteem. We're to treat ourselves to the finer things. We're to think of ourselves as being above certain things. I read a slogan a while back from an insurance company that said this, For the most important person in the world, you. Wow. L'Oreal Paris slogan used to read, because you're worth it. I mean, we're, we're, we're constantly exposed to these messages telling us that we're to think of ourselves more than we should. But you know what Scripture teaches? 
Scripture is clear that though we are special insofar as we're created in God's image, we're not nearly as great and as important as we think we are. It's true. We need to have a correct view of ourselves. And being reminded of how Christ humbled himself, that should put things into perspective for us, shouldn't it? Should affect the way we view ourselves and our service to others. In seminary, Leslie and I worked as house parents for mentally challenged men. And to be honest with you, there were times when that job was not enjoyable. One weekend I had to help a man to and from the bathroom and shower who had broken his hip. And without going into too much detail, believe me when I tell you, it was a challenge. I remember thinking to myself, God, when I surrendered to ministry, this is not what I had in mind. I was mad. It's a bad weekend. But boy, I tell you, God dealt with me right then and there. And you know what he dealt with me about? You know what he said to me? Hey, if I'm not above being a lowly servant, neither should you be. May we learn to reason in this way. If Christ, who is infinitely greater than any thought of us, could wrap a towel around his waist and wash the filth between his disciples' toes, then we should be willing to do likewise. So number one, Christ served to be our example. Second, he did it to save us. He did it to save us. Look again at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice here once again, that when this meal takes place, Jesus knows that his hour is coming. He knows that the end is near. He knows that the time has come for him to leave and return to the Father. And notice what he says at the end of verse 1. It, it, notice what it says here. It says, he loved them to the end. I like the way the NIV translated, I, uh, translates it. I think it's on point here. It says, he showed them the full extent of his Love. Now, what is John talking about here? What does it mean when he says that Jesus is going to show them the full extent of his love? Is he talking about the physical act of foot washing? Is that the full extent of Christ's love? No. The foot washing was just a foreshadowing of something greater. This act is preparing Jesus' disciples for the type of humility and service that he is going to show them. So the full extent of his love is not referring to the physical act of foot washing, but it's referring to what's going to take place on the next day when Jesus lays down his life for them. Remember last week in John 12, we talked about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and we talked about the fact that when he comes into town, people are going crazy for him. They're going out into the streets. They're meeting him with palm branches. And what does Jesus do? He gets a donkey to ride into town. Remember how odd we said that was? I mean, no one looks regal and impressive on a donkey, right? But what's Jesus doing? He's humbling himself. He's showing that he is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. He is the one who has come. He is the king who has come, who is bringing salvation, humble and riding on a donkey. It was an act of humility. And here in chapter 13, Jesus humbles himself even more by dressing like a lowly servant and acting like a lowly servant and taking the role of a lowly servant and washing his disciples' feet. And all of this is leading up to his ultimate act of humility. You see, the very next day, Jesus is going to be stripped of his clothes once again. 
and He's going to be laid down, and He's going to be hung up on a cross, and is going to be crucified. See, there's a progression here. He continues to humble himself more and more to the point of giving his life away. That's what Paul said in Philippians 2. Brett read it earlier. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was the ultimate act of humility and the ultimate act of service for his disciples. Now, here's the important question of the morning. You ready? Most important question is this. How is Jesus... Laying down his life, how is this laying down of his life the ultimate act of service for his disciples? Well, we find the answer in verse 8. Look at what it says here. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, if you don't let me wash you, You can have no share with me. You cannot be one with me. I cannot be your Lord. I cannot be your Savior if you do not let me cleanse you. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is something beyond the physical act of foot washing once again, isn't he? He is. Though he will wash Peter's feet, he's talking about a much more important cleansing that has to take place. You see, this washing of his disciples' feet is just pointing toward this greater cleansing that is going to happen when Jesus washes their sins away. The physical act of cleansing in this chapter is pointing toward a greater cleansing that is going to be made possible at Calvary. So Jesus is talking about the work that he is going to accomplish at the cross and the work that he's going to do for them. And he says to Peter, Peter, if you do not accept this act of service, that I'm going to do for you, if you do not accept this cleansing that I'm going to provide, if you do not allow me to cleanse you, you can have nothing to do with me. Folks, that was true of Peter in the first century, and that's true of us today. The salvation that Jesus accomplished over 2,000 years ago is a work that extends far beyond his disciples. Praise the Lord to us. The work that's available to us today, the work that Jesus accomplished at Calvary, the cleansing that Jesus talks to Peter about is offered to you as well. And if you're here this morning and you have yet to be cleansed of your sins, if you have not come to the point where you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, listen, Scripture is clear on this. You are condemned and unclean. But if you will accept His work that He has done for you on your behalf at Calvary and trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. Get this, you can be forgiven and cleansed and made right with God. Let's pray.